Our speaker today is Donald Frazier. He is a professional historian and a professor of history at the McMurray University in Abilene, Abilene Texas, and an award-winning author. He has authored or edited Cotton Clads, The Battle of Galveston and the Defense of the Texas Coast, Blood and Treasure, Confederate Empire in the Southwest, and Love and War, The Civil War Letters and Medicinal Book of Augustus V. Ball. Dr. Frazier is head of the Grady McWinney Research Foundation and a member of the Philosophical Society of Texas, as well as the Texas Historical Foundation. He has worked on the development of three museums, two research centers, and a Mexican War battlefield. His current book, Blood on the Bayou, is the third of a four-volume history of the Civil War in Texas and Louisiana. Please welcome Donald Frazier. Very, very pleased to be in uh, Boston to uh, speak about this project that I've been chasing for years now. I had no idea how intimately associated Massachusetts and Louisiana were during the course of the Civil War, uh, but I'm going to take you through some of that today. Now, I brought a, um, a virus with me to, Louisiana, or to New England, and I apologize for the course uh, throat, but I was assured that everybody up here has already had it, so uh, <laughs> it's just, just more exotic strain, perhaps. All right, the title of the book is Blood on the Bayou, and it is as mentioned, the third of a four-book series that I have likened as the Louisiana Quadrille. And like a quadrille, 19th century dance, uh, there's four partners that always seem to be uh, changing partners in the course of the dance. I became fascinated by the Civil War in Louisiana through kind of a roundabout way. I was interested in what Texas had done in the Civil War. Texas seemed so remote to the conflict which seems so present elsewhere in the country. Uh, but what I discovered was that Texas fought its civil war in Louisiana, uh, largely against New England and New York troops. And so that's actually brought me to this day. So to get started, let me introduce you to a uh, Massachusetts politician and a former governor of yours, uh, Benjamin Butler. Benjamin Butler was sent to Louisiana to occupy and um, administer captured New Orleans, and there to bring some sort of law and order to that part of the country, uh, brought in things like sewers and other innovations to New Orleans, which surprised me that they didn't have sewers before Union occupation, but having been to New Orleans, I'm not surprised any longer. Uh, so we got some very nice New England sort of uh, orderliness imposed on uh, New Orleans, but the thing that scared Butler was he didn't have enough troops to hold it. And there was a Confederate resurgence that threatened him. And so he had already advocated for arming African-American liberated slaves and putting them in the Union Army. So he just makes it very clear to the administration of Abraham Lincoln that if he is threatened in his position in New Orleans, he will call on Africa for aid. What Africa looked like, in Benjamin Butler's view, was the Louisiana Native Guards. Louisiana Native Guards were part of a long tradition in colonial Louisiana of having a black militia 
as part of the Civic Guard. These regiments served during the War of 1812, working with Andrew Jackson, for instance, at the Battle of New Orleans. And um, they offered their services at the beginning of the war as Confederate forces uh, defending New Orleans. They were rejected. So by and large, the organizations fell apart. Benjamin Butler said, well, we'll just reorganize them, restack them, and we'll add them to the Union Army. In October of 1862, Butler is able to expand his holdings in South Louisiana by launching a campaign through the portion of Louisiana known as the LaForce country. Uh, it's essentially from Donaldsonville south to Thibodeau and then over to present-day Morgan City, which was then Brashear City. I think you can see some of these uh, places on the map. That's one end of it down here at Brashear City, present-day Morgan City. This is uh, Donaldsonville. And uh, that long bayou line uh, that runs through that country actually watered some of the most valuable acres uh, in North America. These were large sugar plantations with large populations of enslaved people working those fields. What happened when Weitzel ran through the LaForce country was that he is absolutely mobbed by this now displaced population all looking to the federal authority for some sort of guidance on how to in fact be liberated because there was no real instruction. And in fact, their status was a little unclear, even within the federal authority. Uh, it was, in fact, General Butler that coined the phrase contraband when talking about slaves that had run away from their masters into Union lines. However, these contrabands were not declared free at first. It's only after the passage of several pieces of legislation, most notably the First and Second Confiscation Acts, that you start to see the status of slaves that have, quote, self-emancipated become truly liberated. So now that this process is underway, what do you do? And in fact, there is such a large population of liberated slaves flocking to Brigadier General Godfrey Weitzel's army that he is at a loss on what to do. This is an um, editorial cartoon that ran in the New York paper that likens Weitzel to the man who won an elephant at a raffle. He's pleased that he has won, but now what do you do with it? So, Butler says, let's put them to work. And in fact, liberated slaves are put to um, municipal duties. They're rebuilding levees, they're paving roads, working on the aforementioned sewer system, things like that, put to practical use, but not yet militarized, except for those already extant Louisiana Native Guard regiments. But Butler has a plan, and this plan is also circulating around the halls of Washington, and that is that perhaps the United States military will be the best mechanism for transitioning these people from slavery into freedom. This is actually a map that is drawn from the census data that shows the slave density across the United States. Notice the region where we're talking about today. That is a enslaved heartland there. And so a lot of times we tend to think of the campaign for the Mississippi 
in purely Winfield Scott anaconda campaign sort of terms, that they're trying to capture the Mississippi to surround the South and strangle it out. I would argue that by the fall of 1862, the Mississippi Valley becomes a target for campaigns as well because of the number of people, enslaved people, that can be harvested and removed from slavery and put to federal purposes. Here's what the South fears from this war, servile insurrection. In some of those parishes that I just showed, those dark Indian areas along the Mississippi uh, banks, uh, whites are in the vast minority. And if you have this disruption of liberation, whites are fearing that there will be massacres going on. In fact, they talk about the terror of it all. Benjamin Butler's staff says, terror in the service of the federal government is to be encouraged. If these people are afraid, they will bring their sons and husbands home to protect them. This is what else the federal authority understood about slavery in the South. It is the Confederate Humpty Dumpty. Once you break it, it's going to be tough to glue it back together. Now, remember, we're talking about the fall of 1862 and into the spring of 1863. The outcome is in doubt. Now, a lot of times people hear that and they say, well, perhaps he means that the federal authority doesn't know if it's going to win. No, no, no. I am convinced that the Federals knew they were going to win from day one. I think the Confederacy is a lot more overblown than, I think the Confederates blew it up a lot more than uh, was sustainable. But the problem is, what if the Confederacy collapses too rapidly? What if these states are readmitted before slavery is destroyed? Could we have a nightmare scenario where we have a two-year civil war, but readmitted slave, uh, slave states. After all, slavery is a state prerogative. There is no constitutional amendment, no 13th Amendment at this point, that would eliminate that state prerogative. So, as long as you're going to fight this war, let's wreck slavery so that if on the odd chance, Louisiana, say, is back in the Union as a slave state, they will never be able to re-knit the fabric of slavery. Let's inject it with a fatal serum that will kill it long-term if you can't kill it short-term. Well, Louisiana is clearly fertile ground. Uh, this shows, it's a, a bad image, but you can see that along the Mississippi there's a very high percentage of slaves as part of the population. And on this map, to just get you thoroughly uh, acquainted, this is Vicksburg and this is Port Hudson. So between those two Confederate citadels is where the majority of the slaves in the lower Mississippi Valley reside. Okay, we have the Emancipation Proclamation occur on the 1st of January, 1863. The question is, what does the Emancipation Proclamation actually do? Well, it declares that all slaves that are held in areas still in rebellion to be free. So does that actually free any slaves? Well, it's a yes and no sort of answer. It's kind of both. 
But what it does do is it creates a legal framework for where union troops don't have to ask permission and don't have to wrangle over the issue of the status of those slaves. They are free. They are liberated. Notice in the Emancipation Proclamation that there are several parishes in Louisiana that are exempted from the Emancipation, and there's also states like Kentucky and Delaware and Maryland that are exempted. The Emancipation Proclamation doesn't free all the slaves. It frees the slaves in areas still in rebellion. So this is really about setting up the circumstances by which U.S. forces can then encounter these peoples and then remove them to Union lines. I'll demonstrate. Um, Abraham Lincoln sees the map and he sends his staffers to the Mississippi Valley, actually to the army of Ulysses Grant outside of Vicksburg, and says, by our calculations, there should be 100,000 slaves that can be enlisted, liberated, liberated and then enlisted into the Union Army from that stretch from Vicksburg all the way down to New Orleans. 100,000 men, that's your goal. And Henry Halleck says, yeah, that's the new plan. And um, we have these two Confederate citadels, but really we need to start putting black men into the ranks. One of the things that the Emancipation Proclamation does, in conjunction with the Confiscation Acts, is it makes liberated slaves subject to conscription. So these 100,000 men that will be put into the ranks will not necessarily be volunteers. Now, in order to get this program sold, you have to propagandize it. You have to talk about what an uplifting event this is going to be. Now, we're in the shadow of the Robert Gould Shaw Memorial in the 54th Massachusetts uh, story. And that's a completely different story than what we're telling here. Those men volunteered from a large urban area. Uh, many of them were free blacks before the war, if not most. Uh, this is, in fact, going to plantation country, removing people from their circumstance, and then pressing them into the ranks. And so we have trading cards, like the one that you see on my right, I guess that's on your left, uh, where you have this recruiting sergeant telling this man to rise up a man. Um, and it's actually part of about a 24-card series. And, you know, you cut them out and trade them amongst your friends that shows the progression of a slave from a cotton field uh, to being sold away from his family to rebelling against his master to ultimately joining the Union Army. And then you also see the recruiting poster there of some very uh, well-equipped troops talking about come and join us brothers. So this is really the story that is being sold, and this is for a northern audience. This is for people in Philadelphia. This is for people in Boston and New York. <clears throat> this is the part of the world that we're talking about where these men will come from. This is the lower stretches of the Mississippi River uh, with special interest in the West Bank. The problem with the West Bank and Louisiana is that it doesn't have a back door. It's wide open, and it's wide open to Texas. And this will lead to some major logistical headaches. You will never secure the West Bank of the Mississippi unless you can cut Texas off. 
because Texas is supplying Louisiana with beef, with pork, with troops, and also with weapons and material of war. So this is a particularly sticky strategic situation to have to unravel while you're also trying to raise 100,000 troops, while you're also trying to contain Confederate forces at Vicksburg and Port Hudson. The federal authorities in the lower Mississippi have quite the chore ahead of them. Well, Nathaniel P. Banks, another Massachusetts hero, launches a campaign into the lower reaches of Louisiana to at least sever those ties between Texas and Louisiana. It's known as the Bayou Tesh Campaign. There's our uh, Confederate commander in that region. Uh, this is uh, Richard Taylor, son of President Zachary Taylor. Here's the terrain blown up a little bit and shows essentially the progress of the campaign. Different uh, audiences, different venues, we'd get down into the weeds with this regiment did this and this regiment did that. But know that this army is by and large a New England army. And of the Massachusetts regiments involved, the majority of them are 90, I'm, I'm sorry, nine months volunteered regiments. These were all Massachusetts militia that have joined for a short period of time to go down to Louisiana, handle this chore, and then come back home. But a uh, tens, uh, probably about 10,000 Massachusetts troops involved in all of these campaigns. One of the things that Nathaniel P. Banks states when he goes through South Louisiana was that he has absolutely no trouble using the enemy's mules, horses, and cattle against them, nor will he have any reservations about using his slaves against him. And on May 1st, 1863, he creates a corps d'armée known as the Corps d'Afrique. Uh, Banks had a flair for the dramatic and uh, thought that if you called it something exotic, uh, that it would help kind of build something that would be a little out of the ordinary in terms of organization and command and control. The long and short of it, though, is the men that go into the Corps d'Afrique will be rounded up like cattle and mules and horses. And the Union Army actually stops its raid up by Utesh to scour all of that country for men uh, to uh, orient you on where we are. Uh, Vermillionville is present-day Lafayette, Louisiana. Avery Island is the home of Tabasco, which I recommend with your local oysters. Um, here's Port Hudson. Baton Rouge. So it's all this sort of swampy country in the middle of the Shafalaya Basin, but it's all that fertile ground to the west of it is the great recruiting ground for the Corps d'Afrique. Now, little housekeeping here, the core of the Corps d'Afrique begins with the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Louisiana Native Guards, just what Butler started. But it's supplemented by so-called engineering regiments. Really, these are just pick and shovel details. Uh, but also, other regiments are added to it, including uh, the troops raised by Daniel Ullman. Daniel Ullman was a New Yorker, 75th New York, um, Army of the Potomac, and had gone to Lincoln and said, look, I would like to go to Louisiana and help raise troops. 
Lincoln sent Ullman down there, and he took with him 200 officers from the Army of the Potomac. So there's this interesting officer cadre that comes down to Louisiana to help organize this organization. While this is going on, you have two Union maneuver elements. You have a Union Army maneuvering up here against Vicksburg under Grant. Simultaneously, you have this Army down here kicking around in South Louisiana under Banks. Henry Halleck was very specific. Said, you guys need to work together. If at all possible, don't screw this up. And you don't have to go fast. You just have to be thorough. So Grant promised to send troops to Banks. Said they'll be here. They weren't. Said they'll be here. They weren't. And finally, Banks is left with no other alternative but to try to make some sort of sense out of this great raid, this great gathering effort, because he's not in contact with Grant. So he turns on Port Hudson. This makes the general-in-chief somewhat apoplectic. Halleck declares both these armies lost. Says you cannot, you cannot operate deep in enemy territory without any sort of support. I didn't tell you guys to just start winging it. I told you guys to lock down these armies but gather all these black troops into the ranks. We've got a lot of chores to do down there, and you guys are just kind of going through the countryside willy-nilly. In fact, he is furious with Grant. He says, you know, you've exceeded your instructions. And Grant's saying, sorry I'm successful. I'll move on. Here's photographs of some of the uh, troops that are rounded up from the uh, Opelousas country in South Louisiana. These are actually Louisiana slaves shot in a, um, a New Orleans photographic studio. This is the recruiting ground. This is where the troops actually come from and where they go to. Grant is also instructed to raise troops from the local African-American population. He designates his regiments, um, say, the 1st Louisiana African descent, actually 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th, so forth, uh, Louisiana African descent, versus uh, Banks's naming convention, which is the Corps d'Afrique. But I want you to notice the red dots on this map. Those are centers of Confederate refugee activity. And so almost immediately, the Confederates in Louisiana figure out, slave owners in Louisiana figure out, okay, now all of a sudden this is actually a war about who physically controls these people. This isn't, you know, the theory of slavery. This is now a war about slaves. And so they chain their people together and lead them in long wagon trains to refugee into Texas. Probably 100,000 are moved into Texas during this time period. Long and short of it for Louisiana, nobody gets to stay home. It doesn't matter which side of this conflict you're on. In fact, I would say Louisiana is one of the most disrupted of all the uh, regions in the country from this war. Well, the disruption goes further. 
because these gathered liberated slave populations are then sifted. And the women and the children and the old and the infirm are moved away from the military-aged men. By the end of this process, 25,000 military-aged African-American men from Louisiana will be put into the ranks of the Union Army, which represents about a third of the total potential. But oftentimes they are removed from their families, which they never see again. If you read the WPA slave narratives and understand it in this context, you'll be amazed at the number of times that you will read a uh, young or Louisiana former slave, now maybe 80 years old, talk about their youth and talk about the day that the blue soldiers came and took daddy away and we never saw him again. And uh, that's a little different story than I had heard. So there is this sifting of the population. The men go into the ranks and the women and the uh, non-combatants are relocated to contraband camps, no longer contraband camps, just resettlement camps. Well, the problem with this is Louisiana is a tough environment for a camp setting. And uh, death and pestilence visit these camps on a regular basis and carry thousands of these non-combatants off. Uh, it's a, it, it is truly a, a heart-rending time of, of resettlement. Here's what one Massachusetts chaplain uh, said about this. He said, you know, they're free, but stacking them up in these camps is not the solution. So just let them be free. It's better for them to go find their own way than to be left here to die from yellow fever under the hot Louisiana August sun. Well, this is the goal. This uh, young man's name is Taylor. Notice that he's part of the 6th Regiment Cordae Freak. I'm just about this close to being able to prove that this is a kid that came off of Richard Taylor's plantation in St. Charles Parish, Louisiana, hence his name. So that's the ideal. This is what we're going for. Now, all this would have run smoothly. Things could have uh, gotten back to normal pretty rapidly, except that those two Confederate forts continue to linger. Vicksburg proves to be a pretty tough nut to crack, and so does Port Hudson. So as long as the Confederates are still defiant, you're going to have an issue of getting all these logistics sorted out. Here is what the public wanted to hear. These brave black regiments will serve in a heroic way and top those walls because they're striking for their liberty. But what the reality is is that these are men, and they are faced with the same fear of death as everyone in this room. In fact, uh, Benjamin Butler said, um, one of the things that's interesting about slaves that are liberated and then put into the army is that they don't know when to run. They've been so used to being abused in a white-dominated system that as soon as everything kind of goes to smithereens, they clump up. He said, my New England regiments, as soon as they know that the fight's going against them, they'll run away. I'll find them a mile back in the trees. I'll get them reorganized and all is well. So these black regiments tend to clump up and the Confederates shoot them down in place. And the first time that, this, that uh, black troops are committed in the siege of Port Hudson, 
that's largely what happens. They get stuck in a, in a mire and don't know to go forward, can't go backwards, and get mowed down. And the Confederates refused to let anybody recover their bodies. Well, since they're not going to be able to carry positions any better than white troops, uh, what falls to the court Afrique is that they get to dig the fortifications. And so instead of being raised up a man and used as soldiers main, in a mainline regiment, they are then handed picks and shovels and said, why don't you dig these trenches for the white troops? Here's one uh, of these troops' reactions. He joined the Union Army because he saw Union troops carrying away a lot of beef, cattle, and chickens. And he said, hey, that sounds like a pretty good place to go. In another statement, he says, you know, when you look up and you see a thousand guns pointing at you, you wish you'd just stayed in the woods. Here's an interesting postcard from this time period. I want y'all to drink in this image. So clearly we have a family quarrel going on, a domestic dispute. But what is the man in the background doing? Same thing I did when my folks were quarreling. I tried to stay out of what we called the trouble bubble. I found a very interesting quote from uh, New Orleans. Now this is probably apocryphal because I've also seen it in a Eastern European setting. But in this story, a newspaper man talks about a conversation he overheard between two men on the street, two African-American men that were contemplating their fates. And um, the older of the two was talking to the younger one who was about to go to the recruiting office. He said, well, Grandpa, do you think I should go? And the old man said, well, have you ever seen two dogs fight over a bone? Well, yes, I have. Well, did the bone fight? Okay, so now all of a sudden what you have is an African-American population going, okay, we get this, we've been liberated, but now we're being frog-marched into the ranks, and this looks an awful lot like what we just left, which is not exactly what we had in mind. So as you can imagine, desertion rates are pretty doggone high with the Louisiana Cordae Freak because they're near home and they can get away. Well, because Vicksburg and Port Hudson are holding out, because there is so much disruption going on, the Confederates strike back. They have to come up with some sort of plan to try to disrupt what is going on here. And in fact, a 10,000-person uh, train of liberated slaves is pursued all the way down by Utesh. This is a prominent Bostonian, you may recognize him, uh, Chickering Pianos. You're familiar with the Chickering Piano Company. Well, this is the son of that uh, family. And I love those boots. I'd like to know where in Boston I can get a pair like that. <laughs> that would look good back home. Um, probably had a snowy winter. But um, he is able to escape his pursuers, get these people back in the Union lines, and put them into the Federal machine. The Confederates don't quite know what to do to shut down this African-American recruiting effort, the capture of slaves, if you will, or how to relieve Vicksburg or Port Hudson. They're just flummoxed. If Halleck was flummoxed, the Confederates are certainly flummoxed. And so you have one of two options. You can try to relieve Vicksburg 
or you can try to relieve Port Hudson. The Confederate consensus is to relieve Vicksburg. Do something is what the Confederate government says. And so most of Confederate efforts in Louisiana are focused opposite Vicksburg. The result is a largely useless military expedition against a former supply depot at Milliken's Bend. But in this particular campaign, you have the first only white on only black, really, uh, force engagement. So this is the first time that you see how black troops will respond in stand-up combat against regular Confederate forces. And this is something that the Confederates want to find out as badly as the Federals do. Well, here's uh, three different images. The bottom image is an image that came out about a month after the fight. And if you take a look at it, it's clear that there's an awful lot of Confederates, not as many blacks, but some of the blacks are taking the opportunity to get away from the violence, okay? About a month after the fight. The topmost image is nine months after the fight. And there it's a lot more heroic and a lot more holding your ground hand to hand. In fact, this particular battle was absolutely vicious. The hand-to-hand -hand combat was absolutely on the, the same scale and scope as anywhere else in the war. The Confederates were stunned at how well these black troops did. And they sent word home that the more of these regiments that they get raised, the farther and farther away any hope of independence will ever be. Richard Taylor decides, all right, if we're going to uh, disrupt this operation, then perhaps what we need to do is to get the Union forces besieging Port Hudson to blink. Now, how do you make banks blink? Well, he goes on a uh, campaign against his logistics. Raiding into the LaForce district in a lightning cavalry strike, breaking up those plantations that had been at peace for nine months, uh, disrupting the free black labor supply, breaking up the contract labor agreements, and generally just raising cane, pardon the pun, in that sugarcane district. This is going to be coupled with a military expedition against Banks's main trans-Mississippi supply base at Brashear City. And it'll be an amphibious operation across this body of water to the left, known as Berwick Bay, which is the outlet of the Shaflia River heading towards the Gulf Coast, along with the raiders that came up from the LaForce country over on this side. So essentially, they'll sandwich in this Union base and capture that garrison, which in fact occurs. From there, Confederate forces fanned out with the idea of threatening New Orleans. And in fact, they put field pieces on the banks of the Mississippi, they shell shipping that's going by, and uh, generally wipe out the Union presence in that country. Now think about the implications for the black population. For nine months, they've been free. Nine months, they've been in labor contracts. Now all of a sudden, they're being rounded up by Confederates and hauled out of this country. Again, this becomes a war about who physically controls the people. Here is Taylor's gambit. 
to make banks trade New Orleans for Port Hudson. But it doesn't work. I put a uh, Texas vernacular statement up there. Banks refused to be stampeded. He uh, kept at the siege. He would not be broken. And in fact, Port Hudson falls. Okay, that's not just in my head. Y'all hear that too, right? Okay. <laughs> I thought I'd finally gone all the way over. All right. Now, that leaves one last chore for the Confederates. Since Port Hudson has fallen, Vicksburg fell a week before, now they have to get out of this cul-de-sac they put themselves in. And Banks brings his army down from Port Hudson uh, with an idea of driving them down to LaForche while a naval force blocks their crossing of Berwick Bay and another army comes down the railroad tracks towards Brashear City. Well, the Navy is late and uh, Banks' forces that come down from Donaldsonville are checked at a severe little fight known as the Battle of Cox's Plantation, and the Confederates escape with their plunder, including people. Now the results of this campaign. Overall, we know how the Mississippi Valley campaign ends. All of a sudden, you can go from Cairo, Illinois, to New Orleans uh, relatively free of violence. Liberated slaves are resettled by the tens of thousands. Uh, many of these liberated slaves are in fact resettled to New Orleans. And of course, New Orleans already has all of its high ground settled, so guess where they're placed? I would argue that if you've seen any footage from Hurricane Katrina and you see a bunch of these low places that are flooded, First time a bunch of these places are occupied is in the fall of 1863 when these people are resettled there. Notice this lithograph too. There's uh, not really any military aged men in this lithograph. The strapping lads that would make good soldiers are not here. It's the women, it's the babes in arms, it's the young and the old. But here is the big payoff from the Mississippi Valley Campaign. There is an army of occupation created that numbers about 38,000 men from just the Louisiana region alone that can occupy places like Port Hudson and Vicksburg, uh, Forts Jackson and St. Philip, those fortified places, which allows the white regiments to go out and become maneuver elements out there in the field against Confederate forces. But one of the things that uh, the French office manager of the French um, um, mission in New Orleans writes to Emperor Napoleon III. He said, this is what the Union is doing in Louisiana. So they are going to militarize this black population to the benefit of the people of the North and to the detriment of the people of the South. And that's how they will keep the peace in the coming generations. All right, always leave them, leave them with the product. And uh, this is uh, essentially the story that's written out across all three of these books, but the uh, campaigns for Port Hudson and uh, Vicksburg are more closely explained in the third, Blood on the Bayou. I appreciate this invitation to come up here and talk to you guys and visit with you about an exotic part of the country where Massachusetts men fought and died. 
Thank you all.